3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Wednesday the 23rd of January of 2019. And Will, you you were saying that January is just now. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so January used to be fun. It used to be the new thing (laughs) that all the kids were talking about. It was 2019, (laughs) we'd have fun with this year, Um, it's still holidays, you know, sort of partying and whatever. Um, But now January is over, (laughs) I'm done with it. I want a new month. Oh my gosh. And I think February isn't promising to be that much better, but I'm I'm ready for it. Um <laughs> It's been a week and my mind has changed. I don't like I don't like January anymore. Goodness gracious. Well, I have to say I'm over the heat. Ah, yep, I'm ready yep, for that yep. to leave. Uh, yeah. someone's like, "Ah, oh, do you like winter instead?" And it's like, "No, I like the in between. I like yeah. spring and autumn." I'm cushioned f- in a my medium. <laughs> optimum temperatures for me is between 22 degrees uh. and 23 degrees. <laughs> Anything outside of that, I will complain about the weather. Um, and so you just have to put up with it, world. Um, yeah, also I watched A Star Is Born. Oh. And the songs were fun. I liked the songs. Yeah. Um, I was kind of let down by the story, but it was it was A Star Is Born. It's been remade like four Three times. Four times, yeah. And I know that I'm way behind on the time, so everyone's already heard every possible hot take, but like, wow. Yeah. Manipulative main character. Mm, yeah, um, just being really bad. And also, like, supported by the film is the problem. Like, I can get you can have a manipulative character in a film. But he's not supposed to be, in some ways, the anti hero. Yeah. Kind of and also, of, like, endorsed by the film. Yeah, you feel sympathetic well. for. Yeah. It should be more like, he's just a dick, she's better yeah. off. <laughs> There's really bad mental health stuff in there. So, if you're one of yeah. the four or five people in the world, or, you know, yeah, who haven't seen. <laughs> A Star Is Born. I'd recommend if it's got bad mental health stuff in there. So yeah, maybe maybe don't watch it. Maybe don't. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, songs yeah. are good though. Yay! You get the soundtrack. <laughs> well, I've been watching for TV series. Mm. Um, uh, we watched last night Altered Carbon, which is a Netflix. Ooh. It's yep. cyberpunk. Yep, yep. And like first episode in, so I can't really make much judgment call. Dystopian future. Well, yeah, cyberpunk. Yeah. So it, it kind of looks, yeah, dystopic future, and it's mm. kind of technology on steroids. Mm. But also really fascinating um, is a theme of corporation and, like, uh, mass control, corporative control. Right, right. So basically, yeah, you know, the, the rich people own your soul. Uh, the okay. rich elite <laughs> are even more rich. Um, yep. And so, and yeah, technology and how much humanity do we still have left in this environment. So... Mm. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, it's looking pretty darn good. It's looking um, good so far? Yes, yes. I've seen like trailers and stuff, and the cinematography looks amazing. It's sort of like, yeah. well, I mean, it's very gritty, very dark um, sort of colours. It's, yeah. it's quite sort of run-of-the-mill for dystopian future well, stuff, but human, it's still really pretty. Yeah, human bodies are referred to as sleeves, and Ooh. you can change sleeve. Your, right. your, your brain is downloaded into like a chip. As long as that chip doesn't die, you don't die. You can just keep bringing yourself back in different people's bodies. Right. So it's okay. a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit messed yeah, up. Okay. <laughs> um, 
that that's really interesting. <laughs> sleeves. Sleeves. I don't know. That resonates me with me in a weird way. I know. Is it? Yeah. They have a like. I'll say this for the show. It has a knack at naming things in a really disturbed, mm. <laughs> like accurate. Oh, that's a bit too close to home. <laughs> right. But okay. Yeah. Shall I, shall I tell people the weather? Oh, please do. Okay, well, it's going to get to a top of 25 today, Ooh. which is officially too hot for me. No, <laughs> that's good weather. No, it's going to be fine. It's going to be 25 degrees. I'm humid, though. Um, and a uh, morning cloud with a slight chance of drizzle, mm-hmm. clearing to a mostly sunny afternoon. Uh, and the winds will get between tw- 15 and 25 k's um, later in the day, but yep. will ease off in the evening. Um, so yeah, it's slight breeze, 25 degrees, humid. Is that good for your skin? I don't know. Cause no, you're supposed I to drink water. L- no, I loathe humid. Apparently it's mm. harder to sweat as well during humidity. Yeah. So, and you know, sweat's a nice natural process, mm. which your body should be going through. Mm. So uh, I'm going to deem it a no. Mm. <laughs> okay. Humidity. Okay. It's also sure. terrible for my hair. My hair just I just thought that up. if <laughs> drinking water is good for your skin, then surely being surrounded by lots of water <laughs> in the air all the time should be good for your skin. But is still water good on your skin? I mm, don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Okay. There's one we should <laughs> We We need some weather people here. We, we need, need some, some health weathermen. people and skincare people <laughs> here <laughs> as well. Can we make that a thing? I think 3CR would actually love that. Mm. I think a lot of people here have a good skincare regime. Oh, God. <laughs> 3CR people are so pretty. They are. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> We'll be back after that beautiful rambling, um, um, after kind of our nitty-gritty alternative news Intro thingo? Yeah, intro thingo. That's exactly right, Will. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down. Listening to 3CR Community Radio Wednesday breakfast. Uh, alternative news. What do we What news. do we have? All right. So uh, one of my friends sent this to me. So it's courtesy of my best one of my friends. But uh, Endeavour replica to circumnavigate Australia for Cook anniversary. So the story behind this is that a replica of Captain Cook's famous ship, the Endeavour, will circum- circumnavigate Australia as part of celebrating the 250 years since the British explorers' arrival here. And for those who don't know it, this will be an event happening on Invasion Day. Hmm. Hmm, indeed. Now, this Hmm. has been an interesting, interesting thing to come up because Hmm. the debate that could be had here is what is the intention behind this act, Hmm. right? And in some ways, it's a a historical reenactment. They're having a historical ship kind of retake a historical journey and they're looking at, you know, perhaps what it would be like. Mm. However, then the big essential however is this comes within the context of what Australia's currently been doing. And I mean, mm. with your your protests you recently, um, the fact that last week we were talking about ceremonies being, uh, for citizenship ceremonies being put on the 26th, there seems to be a collective effort by our government to really not only ensure that the 26th of Australia stays Australia Day, but also hype up the Australian nationalistic kind of fervor, fervor around that mm. and really just stain the day with that sort of, or taint the day with that sort of really nationalistic Australiana kitsch culture. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I feel like this, this, this historical replica is just exactly the same thing. It's building this mm. kind of Australian mythology or around or, or, or mythology around Australian culture and, you know, kind of romanticizing the past. I mean, let's think about the original, the original 
historical event. It was a bunch of people coming to a a new unfound place to dump a bunch of convicts because they didn't have Mm. enough space in their ships at home. (laughs) And then they find this country, they land, they settle, and they commit cultural and actual physical genocide on its peoples. Mm. Completely wipe out that history and claim it as their own and then enforce their own government. And I mean, it was a time of disease, it was a time of horrible violence, it was a time of, like, we have progressed in some ways since then. So I don't quite see why going back is necessarily anything other than a bit of a stunt. And I question the stunt's intentions. I think they're, they're quite racist, or at least they should be questioned. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think that really goes almost without saying, because mm. we've seen... Just in the context uh, yeah, of how much has yeah. been going on. Mm. And uh, you made a really good point, Will, which is the fact that even if you do come from a struggle and yeah. you're trying to argue that... Yeah, it's not, not a historical mm. reenaction. It's mm. uh, an invention. Like, I mean, I'm not the first in person to point this out. It's all yeah. over Twitter. Everyone who has a comment to make about this is saying that basically it's not, it's not historical mm. at all. The endeavour, yes, existed historically, but it didn't circumnavigate Australia. No. Um, it was Matthew Flinders who did that, um, mm-hmm. along with... Oh, gosh... Never mind, I can't remember who else was on there. But, um, but yeah, it was Matthew Flinders yeah. and Captain Cook wasn't so, on that. Yeah, so, so it feels like a bit of a, it feels like a little bit like another artificial ritual that our government's creating to try and, yeah, enforce yeah. this Australiana culture and it's just kind of gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some really interesting <laughs> comebacks to that I've seen have been uh, one, one team wants to hire out a rival ship <laughs> to <laughs> either follow or <laughs> confront the Nice, ship. okay. That was fun. Yeah. Um, I think a lot, a lot of the people are just kind of questioning why, uh, which is a good thing. Mm. Uh, and mm. yeah, it, it, there you go. That's your piece of alternative news for the week. But it's a, it's a bit of a coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Another kind of creepy ploy going sure. on. Um, can I elevate the please, conversation a bit and make us feel a little bit better? Um, this is Always. happening a bit further away from us, but um, so uh, if you don't know, Mermaids is a charity organisation in the UK that works to support um, transgender um, and non-traditional um, gendered children mm. and non-Western gendered children um, in, in the UK and their families. Um, they provide services to the people, um, directory services as well, and um, it's, it's a really great charity. Mm. Um, they'd won a £500,000 grant from the National Lottery, um, which is a bizarre institution of itself, but that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> £500,000 is a lot of money mm. for anyone, but especially for a charity that, that does Nothing such great to work. Nothing to be sneezed at. Yeah. No. Um, and then after a, um, a brigade raised on Mumsnet, which is some sort of online... Um, sort of chat room platform type thing, uh, who are, there's a whole lot of TERFs basically, um, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Actually, I don't even know if they're radical feminists, they just hate trans people, they're trans Yeah, yeah, I feel like you can have conservatives, you can have radicals, you can have... Sure, well anyway, um, a a gang of um, transphobes um, bombarded um, certain staff from the National Lottery, saying that they shouldn't give this this funding to mermaids, the organisation, and so now the funding is under review, which is such a huge shame because mm. they could have done great things with that money. And so in mm. response to that, a YouTuber um, called HBomberGuy, his real name's Harry Brewis, but he <laughs> goes by HBomberGuy and that's how you'll find him, um, uh, decided to do a, uh, a Twitch stream of Donkey Kong 64 <laughs> um, all the way through. He's never been able to beat the game and so he's decided to take this personal achievement and put it to good use. Um, so he went through the whole game. I think it took like 
two and a half days or something mad like that with no like um with very little sleep or rest um he had to capture every coin do every side mission achieve every level um true a true hero make it all the way through <laughs> real hero because he ended up raising through the fundraising on his mm-hmm. twitch stream 233,490 pounds that's a lot of money Ooh. that's I don't know. It's less than five hundred thousand dollars Australian, but it's it's substantial. Yeah, it's close to that though. I think Um, that's mad money. Good solid. And uh, that goes to mermaids, and yeah, it's just a really nice sort of happy (laughs) story. Like he did that to 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 piss off the the folks who tried to um, stop the funding going to to mermaids. Um, That that funding may still go ahead, but you know it's been held back at least. Mm. And um, as in recognition of this, the Scottish Parliament has recognised um, the charitable work done by H. Bomberguy. Nice. And so in, in their sort of version of the Hansard, there's a, there's a recognition that H. Bomberguy, <laughs> in um, association with a whole lot of people called in during the, the Twitch stream, like um, yeah, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez from, oh. from the US, and uh, is it Banjo the Cat as well, who's like a... Um, a Twitter identity from Northern Ireland who's also a, a trans activist. Um, uh, and a whole lot of other people called in. Um, the, the original voice of Donkey Kong called in <laughs> as well, supporting supporting trans rights. So I like how we don't know his name. We just know he's the original voice of Donkey Kong. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, people know his name. I don't know his name. <laughs> I, I didn't watch that part of the stream. But, um, yeah, it was really, like, actually the stream itself was actually quite boring because he's just playing the game. But yeah. occasionally they'd have guests on it. It was a lot of fun. And um, that's, you know, just under $500,000 um, going to a really great cause. So yeah, that's, that's your panda story, folks. Smiles all around. <laughs> Yay. We have no justice in this country, and we still face systemic racism and ongoing violence at the hands of the Australian state. That is why we protest. That is why we march. Please join us. This Invasion Day and condemn the ongoing violence, ongoing theft, the ongoing discrimination we as Indigenous people across so-called Australia face. Meet on Saturday the 26th of January at 10.30am at the Steps of Parliament. Organisers have asked for supporters to wear black and bring flowers. For more information, visit the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance page on Facebook. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast. Now we're going to move on to a recording of a panel that happened back in November. Um, it was No to NAPLAN, um, a community and educators assembling to talk about NAPLAN, um, the standardised test um, in public schools and schools in, in Australia, um, and the dangers that it can pose to a community. Um, in this clip that we're going to listen to, Gabrielle Stroud is speaking. Gabrielle Stroud was a primary school teacher um, and author of Teacher, One Woman Struggled to Keep the Heart in Teaching, which is a memoir in which she lifts the lid on the NAPLAN education model um, and talks about how it's unfair to students and how it destroys teachers' lives. Um, so let's, let's listen in. I can't seem to do these sorts of things without um, always getting a little bit teary and upset because... Um, I uh, left teaching and it broke my heart and it was a great devastation to me and it it felt like a massive failure that I couldn't keep doing this thing that I thought I was very good at and that I really loved, was my passion. 
And then when I turn up at events like this and a room is full of people and they've turned up to hear me, it's just lifting me up from this thing that has felt like such a failure. And I can't not feel that emotion every single time. I keep waiting for it to fall away, but I'm still always so moved. So I just want to thank you for turning up. I know many of you would be teachers and you've put in a day in the classroom and hells yeah, I know what that's like. So I'm so grateful that you're here. So thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Okay. So uh, I got prepared and I'll just um, share this with you. So it's my belief that we arrive into this world and our minds are open. And as a newborn baby, we don't know anything yet and yet instinctively we know. So our mind is open, it's available, it's curious, it's seeking, it's questioning. We cry for food, we seek touch for comfort, we sleep when we're tired, we eat when we're hungry. And I believe that if we handle those little baby minds with care, the adults around them can help those little ones arrive at school ready for their minds to be opened further and kept fertile. One day when I was teaching kindergarten, it was a maths lesson, and I asked the children in front of me, who knows what the word area means? And this little guy puts his hand up, little proud little Ewan Nation boy puts his hand up and he goes, well, if someone's got more hair than you, you say their area. <laughs> and I said to him, ah, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but that's if they've got more hair than you, you say their hairier. Can you hear that? Hairier. And he listened to me and he looked and thought about it and he went, ah, oh, hairier, hairier. And I watched as his teacher, I watched as his understanding of that word hairier slotted into the complex maze of ideas that he already held in his little mind after six years on the planet. And I watched as he nodded and he contemplated and he considered and then he went, huh, again? And in that moment, he was slotting new information into the existing schemas that were already embedded in his mind and placing this new idea into that fertile place where it would, over time, if it was handled carefully, become a deep conceptual understanding. And for me, this is what learning is. And it happens best when minds are free to be open to be curious and questioning and creative and seeking and innovative. And for me, learning, teaching and learning is a kind of magic. And I'd like us just to think about that for a moment, like what actually happens when we're teaching and when we're learning. So ideally there's someone who's the more capable knower and they're sitting beside the learner and they do something with the learner. Might be telling a story or an activity or giving a demonstration or an explanation. And somehow, through some kind of extraordinary magic, that idea goes from the brain of the knower and, and it stays there. It remains with the knower, but it becomes multiplied and goes to the learner. It's transmuted across like natural Bluetooth. 
Like, that's just extraordinary if you think about it, isn't it? Like, this idea, you know, this knowing and this understanding goes from my brain and into this person's brain, but I don't lose it. And in fact, I sort of gain something in the teaching of it. And then they get to hold on to that and then they get to know it in their way and develop it in their life and could then potentially teach that to some other learner. To me, that is just magic. It's extraordinary. It's mysterious. It is just when, you, when you're in that position of teaching and even sometimes when you're struggling with it as a learner, it just does something to you. You know you're alive when you're having these experiences. So when we're learning, it's not only an opening of the mind, but an opening of the future and an opening of possibilities. When we're learning and we're teaching in a way that opens minds, we're encouraging risk-taking and conversations and questioning and consideration. When minds are opening in classrooms, we become aware of other open minds. So that learner becomes aware that others are learning around them and that they have the capacity to teach others. We, can develop, we also develop empathy and authenticity and we find our voice and we find our ability to listen. But now I want you to think about what happens to that mind and to that learner and to the learning and the teacher when we take that magical experience that is so rich and mysterious and gives us so much and what happens when we then attempt to measure it? What happens when we ask who learnt that best? Who learnt that quickest? Who understands this the most? What happens? In my experience, what happens is that these beautiful, fertile little minds start to close. Here's the thing. There's a misconception among policy makers, politicians and education administrators that schools are a place where students take their open minds ready to be filled as though school is a place where lids are put on brains after information has been poured in, as though students are empty vessels ready to be filled, as though teachers are robotic distributors and disseminators of knowledge, skills and information. And it's my great fear that something sinister is happening in our schools and it runs under the guise of equity and excellence, accountability and measurement and it is a slow permeation of standardisation and ironically the damage it has done is beyond measure. Minds are slowly closing as our students become disenchanted, disengaged and disheartened and I believe our students are growing down, not up. So when I think about that little guy Marley who told me about being hairier. What happens to his mind as he grows into a school system where his efforts are measured and quantified and graphed and compared? Where his, collect his results are put into a collective and used to rank the quality of his entire school on a website? 
The layers of standardisation currently imposed on schools do nothing more than force beautiful minds like Marley, brave, young, flourishing minds to slowly, slowly close. Parsi Solberg, the Finnish Professor of Education Policy, says that the worst enemy of curiosity is standardisation. And I believe a case could be made that standardisation closes minds. So I think it is time for us now to think about what we value as a community and as a society and as a nation. Because if it is standards and performance and rank and data, if that is what we value, well, we should just keep on keeping on and keep going until all the forms are filled and all the boxes are ticked and all the minds are closed. But if we value curiosity and creativity and innovation and empathy, if we value being hairier, if we truly value open minds, then we've got to stop and we've got to stop right now. We must object to standardisation. We must add our voice to the important conversations and we must refuse to be compliant because it's the path of least resistance. That's my little rant for today. And that was Gabrielle Stroud speaking at last year's No to NAPLAN forum held by Message, which is Melbourne Educators and Social Environment. Sorry, Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice um, and speaking about the, her experience of NAPLAN. Uh, next up, we're going to be hearing a song by Mojo Juju. This is Native Tongue. You'll have heard it making the rounds. It's a fantastic song. Um, and uh, hope you enjoy this track. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast. Now we're going to move on to an interview. Uh, last week, uh, uh, people being held in the detention camp at Yonga Hill in Western Australia went on strike in protest against poor conditions and maltreatment by the ABF. Uh, these hunger strikes have since spread to detention centres in Melbourne and Sydney as well, um, with uh, detainees... Pr- um, joining this hunger strike in solidarity. Uh, And to find out a bit more about that, we're speaking to Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective, um, who's on the phone now. Good morning. Hi, Will. How are you going? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So let's learn a bit more about these hunger strikes. What was the impetus of the hunger strike? Um, In Melbourne in particular, there's been a lot of um, anger and resentment brewing at the treatment of detainees um, by Serco guards. There's been extraordinary harassment and abuse, um, a lot of which has been caught on footage um, of people held in immigration detention, um, beatings, uh, harassment, holding people down, handcuffing them, um, putting them in solitary, effectively solitary confinement. Um, it's really quite extreme, the kind of treatment um, of, of detainees in there. Um, but people are really angry about all a range of kind of quite wild um, treatment. 
including being moved across the country to different detention centres, away from their family or loved ones without any kind of notice or, or um, you know, reason or rationale being given by, by Australian border force. Um, you know, the limbo, so lots of lots of detainees who have no criminal or moderation matters pending and just being held there indefinitely, the long-term detention of, of, of people in immigration detention, um, all sorts of kind of, of harassment. Mm. Um, so so this has been building for a long time. Um, and, Absolutely. And a, a couple of, yeah, last week, Melbourne, there were protests in Melbourne um, about, you know, the kind of conditions which stopped but have started again as part of this national protest. There were reports in Crikey of, and this sounds like the least of um, what's happened, but certainly something that caused a lot of outrage, um, in, in particular in Melbourne, in the detention centres here in, in Mitre, um, of a detainee being violently removed from the eating area after he asked for more sauce on his food. Um, yeah. Is that emblematic of the experiences of people in immigration detention? Exactly right. Um, it is the kind of just extraordinarily punitive, you know, asking for garlic sauce and then, you know, having so many guards jump on you and, and, and injure you in that way. It's just extreme. Um, and and that happened, I mean, I don't know if people know, but there's in, in Broadmeadows Detention Centre in Melbourne, there's a section um, for, like, called Mitre North um, and Mitre South, and there are both refugees and people who have had um, their visas cancelled and are facing uh, deportation for, for other reasons being held there. And the, the treatment is across the board. It's for everybody who's been treated in this incredibly violent and repressive way. Mm. Now, can I ask you about the demands we've heard a report out of um Villawood where detainees have written up a a list of demands are you are you familiar with this yeah no i i have they're pretty comprehensive yeah they they're asking for things like um uh, they they're protesting placement and transfer away from family and partners um have you and and uh, actually a whole lot of other things there are 10 demands on the on the document that i'm looking at but have you heard any official response from either the Australian Border Force or the Home Affairs Department? No, no official response whatsoever, um, which isn't unusual. Um, but I think, you know, there there is a sensitivity. They, they do all of these things and get away with them because people have, you know, do not pay attention and do not see um, what's going on in the kind of the, the lawless world of Serco and Border Force immigration detention. Um, so the more that it becomes in the public eye that this kind of atrocity is happening, not just offshore, but also onshore in Australian immigration detention, um, I think that they, um, you know, this is something that Peter Dutton absolutely does not want the world to know. So um, I'm not saying that they can win all of these demands or that we in solidarity with them can't, can't win all of them, but I do, I, I, I can, I think that we could do some serious damage um, to their regime and its credibility just by raising awareness about it. Speaking of raising awareness, um, what has been your observation on the mainstream media um, uh, reportage on, on the hunger strike, which has been going on for a few days now? Um, have you heard much from, from sources like newspapers or television? No, 
I mean, the Crikey article that you mentioned um, is the only one that I'm aware of. Um, the Guardian did cover a really sore issue at MITRE and, and actually all of the, all of the detention centres, which is the visiting issue. Um, a lot of visitors are finding it incredibly hard just to get in and visit. Um, the rules change in ridiculous ways all the time. So the kind of ID that you need, the kind of footwear, um, these drug tests that turn people away, you know, Brigidine nuns away from the from the detention center from visiting because they've got traces of drugs on them. Um, it's it's really you know ridiculous. But these kind of rules are getting more and more repressive um, and stopping people from visiting and, and making connections with people, mm. um, which is obviously strategic. Um, and that is something that the Guardian at, at the very least has covered. But that's been the extent of it. Um, the SBS covered the, um, the initial strike in Melbourne, so hopefully we can get a bit more media attention. Absolutely. Now, if we um, is is there anything that our listeners or the community in general can do to show support and solidarity with the hunger strikers? Yes, come to our solidarity protest today at four o'clock. So we're having an action um, with speakers. We'll have a, a link up to one of the the. Um, MITRE detainees who's leading the hunger strike um, there and um, hear from visitors and other people in, involved and in connection with people um, and we will show our anger and our com- you know our commitment to, to solidarity with these people um, it's at 4pm today at the Department of Immigration and Border Protection which is in the Castleton Place building to Lonsdale Street, Melbourne to Lonsdale Street in Melbourne. Wonderful. Uh, so can, can I ask about the expected long-term outcome of this? I know that we were, we were talking about the likelihood of the Australian Border Force actually answering to, um, to the demands of the hunger strikers, but uh, how do you see this playing out um, given the context of previous protests and how those have turned out? Well, previous, I mean, the um, MITRE detainees went on hunger strike for a few days um, last week, and apart from other things, it was over the kind of extreme austerity of their conditions. Um, they're held there indefinitely, many of them, um, for long terms, and there's one TV in an area for, um, you know, hundreds of people, um, and they were demanding TVs to occupy their kind of very, very stressed out minds. Um, there are stools that are, are drilled into the ground that you can't pull across to watch the TV. Um, so they were, they were calling for, um, TVs and couches and they actually won quite a few of those demands. More substantive and kind of, uh, concerning demands about, um, charging and sacking the circo officer who has been just incredibly lawless there and officers who have been lawless didn't win. But um, I think that the kind of reaction to their um, initial hunger strike to try and try and quell it um, means that there is a sensitivity. So I think that, um, you know, we might not win all of those demands, but we should certainly try. Um, and I think it is all part of the process of trying to, you know, really throw into question this crazy lawless situation of immigration detention um, in Australia. There are so many atrocities going on and the Minister for Immigration has so much power which then kind of cascades into this um, you know really unaccountable level of power um, and and abuse within the detention centres and drawing attention to that I think is really important in, in really ultimate end game um, ending immigration detention in Australia.
there are there are critics who would um, abolish all of Australia's carceral system, so I'm not making any endorsements of the prison system, but there are reports that the conditions in immigration detention are actually worse than in prisons. And I was wondering what you make of that when officially this um, det- detention is administrative for, for a lot of the refugee and asylum seekers. That's, I mean, the word is used, administrative is used to justify it, isn't it? Because these people haven't done anything wrong, or if they have done wrong, that they've served their crime in actual prisons. Um, but, yeah, this, this is not administrative by any stretch. You know, how can you hold people indefinitely um, in these kind of, you know, like arbitrary punishments, moving people away from their sick mother across the country, um, you know, uh, refusing people garlic sauce, hitting people, uh, you know, leaving them bruised in hospital for incidences, um, you know, solitary confinement. None of that is administrative. Um, I think it's a total lie, um, and definitely, you're right, people have said, you know, just the very fact that there's an indefinite quality to, to the detention there means that it is so much, you know, more mentally um, destroying than, than a sentence where you know what the, what the time is. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, giving us a bit of information on the hunger strikes. Can you remind us again um, when and where people can turn up in solidarity today? 4pm at Catherton Place, which is 2 Lonsdale Street, Melbourne. Wonderful. We've been speaking to Lucy Honan, who's a representative of Refugee Action Collective. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. Thanks, Will. Wonderful. Now we're going to move on um, to return to, to the um, Melbourne Educators and Social um, and Envir- for Social and Environmental Justice Forum that happened last year. Um, message. Um, we're holding a forum... Um, about NAPLAN, called No to NAPLAN. Uh, next, we're going to be hearing from Brendan, who's a um, UN and Irish um, background educator. Um, he's no longer a teacher, but he's um, got some very valuable experience on NAPLAN and its impact on the community. It's hard to know exactly where to start. I can, I can do about two hours on this topic. Um, but I... I have this belief, like, as an educator, that it's important to sort of um, be a part of um, the room. And, um, and so I want to start by saying how, uh, what a privilege it is to be here and to say thank you for coming for the same reasons that I was with a, a friend of mine today. We caught a plane back from Central Desert and uh, she's an educator and we talked about who would come tonight um, after teaching and working all day. And mm. I'm very grateful that you're all here um, and I'm grateful to Lucy for organising this and uh, to be here with Gabby, who um, I've read a lot about and I've seen her on TV. Um, and I'll start by saying that one of the greatest issues that we have in education is that one-off, because there's many, and I'm not going to rank them, <laughs> um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, their last sort of uh, time around, um, came up with a statistic of 53% uh, of um, Australian citizens who uh, have an education degree have left teaching. Mm-hmm. It's about 20 odd percent, I can't remember exactly, 21, 22, something like that. Um, 
within their first year leave, not to return. Like what a crisis we have in education. Um, and the crisis, I think, um, I'll come back around to it, but the crisis is that education uh, has been commandeered by uh, politicians and bureaucrats who actually don't know what they're doing. Um, if I start with um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it states that education, um, that everyone has the right to education and that education um, should be directed to the full development of the human personality. It's Article 26. And then it should promote respect, tolerance and understanding amongst all nations. And it should promote peace amongst all people. So out of that, we have an arm of the United Nations, UNESCO, as a beautiful start to their preamble. That is, since wars start, um, since all wars start in the minds of men, it's in the minds of men that the defences of peace must be constructed. That's really nice. I like that. I like to think about that. We could measure the success of education in our society if we really needed metrics on how many people we've got in prison, how many people are excluded, the, the school-to-prison pipeline. We could do that if we, re if we wanted metrics that really mattered. But we have this huge issue, and I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so back me here because I've done a lot of time on this. And NAPLAN's born out of the program for International Student Assessment, PISA, which um, is born out of the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development. It's 36 member states, roughly 27. I'm not great on this, but about 27 uh, play in you know, the European Soccer Championships. So let's say Europe and a few friends are in there pulling the strings on education policy throughout the world via standardised testing. Now you might think, oh, I don't know, I can't see the link right now. NAPLAN is for 15 year olds. Um, it goes, oh, sorry, PISA is for 15 year olds. NAPLAN, we go grade three, five, seven, nine. NAPLAN finishes by, I think this year it was the end of May. Then PISA comes in July to September. It's really conditioning. We're preparing kids through standardised testing of literacy and numeracy to get them to a point to perform for a PISA assessment, which is just pointless, really. Um, you may have heard from... Um, media and governments about how poor our education system is because we're going backwards and we don't do so well against Finland or Shanghai do better than us but some, something quite remarkable happened in the last round of testing that you probably won't know too much about because you don't get much of a run in the media and that is that the OECD came out with a new test and they decided that something like collaborative problem solving and we finished top ten in the world Quite amazing. Um, it didn't get much of a run, but it's quite remarkable because Shanghai, the province of Shanghai, topped literacy, numeracy, and science in PISA 
last time around and they didn't make the top 20 because you can't really teach to how to work together in, in rote sort of style. You can't teach to that test. So there's all these theories sort of swirling around academia about is it because we play sport? What is it about our culture? No one actually knows why we did so well. It's really hard for our education, uh, I think, policy makers and politicians who largely just passing through to sort of get their head around education and how to measure anything. So I'm, I'm alright with measurement. I believe in growth. So if, from a philosophical point of view, um, I, I like John Dewey and the idea of growth as the characteristic of life and that the sole criterion for the measurement of school is you know, the sort of climate that it provides and the, the means for growth, but not restricted just to literacy and numeracy, and things that matter. I'm not saying that they're um, not important, but there's an incredible amount of priority given to those areas and um, it's to the detriment of all of us. Most children at my, you know, my kids' local school could, um, you know, they, they understand what NAPLAN is because, you know, everyone does it every now and again. But yet it would be hard for... Uh, I would go with... I would take a punt and bet that no child in the school of 500 could tell me the five nations that make up the Kulin Alliance yet they lived for our lives here in Melbourne. Now, I know that's the same, like it's hard for all of us because it's just not something that we think about or talk about. It's not part of our education. read something out from my phone because I took a photo of it. That's sort of the way I'm keeping notes. From the Education Act of Victoria. Just so um, you're with me here. No, sorry. I'll just be a second. I really believe in um, you know, I stood my ground, as Lucy was saying, in the Supreme Court of Victoria and I'm proudly say that I was stood down for misconduct by the state government um, and it was published in the Ombudsman's report so I can say it uh, publicly. Um, I signed an agreement to not apply for jobs within the Department of Education while this current government is in power uh, for a two year period which I said I'd give 10 to. Um, what happened in the Supreme Court was that I was stood down for misconduct um, for providing um, information to the lawyers of the children for whom I had a duty of care um, that was filed in the Supreme Court by the state, uh, tendered by the state. Um, the state weren't telling the truth about beds. But what I, I learnt through that is that they actually didn't know the law. So what I, thank you, what I um, 
what I have the honour of is that I was stood down for misconduct by the department on the day that they were found to have unlawfully detained children in an adult prison and to have breached the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities and punished children with cruel, degrading and inhumane treatment. Now, the Supreme Court judge on that day, just he made comments like, you're flying blind, you forgot to open up the Act. And I, I, I tell you this with all honesty, the one after another got up and they didn't understand the law, yet they were making incredible decisions and policies. They didn't understand best interest principle under the, the Children, Youth and Families Act. They didn't understand what they had to have regard for. There is no, and what's troubling for so many people is that there is, for within the children's uh, legislation around custody, there's nothing in the law that says you've got to have a fence up, right? but they're obsessed with that, become obsessed over time. There's nothing in our Act that says you must aggressively pursue literacy and numeracy progression. Nothing. So this is what I want to tell you. It's taken me a long time to get to it. But it'll really be worthwhile. So everyone, just <laughs> relax here. OK, here we go. The principles underlying the Education and Training Reform Act, Victoria 2006. Parliament has regard to the following principles in enacting this Act. A. All providers of education and training, both government and non-government, must ensure that their programs and teaching are delivered in a manner that supports and promotes the principles and practice of Australian democracy, including a commitment to elected government, the rule of law, equal rights for all before the law, freedom of religion, freedom of speech and association, the values of openness and tolerance. B. All Victorians, irrespective of the education and training institution they attend, where they live or their social or economic status, should have access to a high quality education that realises their learning potential and maximises their education and training achievement, promotes enthusiasm for lifelong learning and allows parents to take an active part in their child's education and training. Now, you can go all the way through the Act and you can go through to what is required to register a school. And there's one area that might come close to something that you might, one might think of as being, oh, well, testing's good. Um, and that talks to student outcomes. But outcomes are linked to curriculum. NAPLAN has nothing to do with curriculum. So maybe I'll just leave it with this for the moment. Let's say that NAPLAN was the best test that we had. Let's just pretend for a moment that it was the greatest guide that we have as a society for the education of our children. Why do we do it? Why do we stop at 15? Why do we start at grade three? Why not earlier? Why do we wait 24 months to the next one if it's so very good? What teaching, what curriculum and teaching is adapted to the from the results of NAPLAN? It's nothing. So, just on that, I mean, if you think about, for every teacher that, as a registered teacher, you um, 
you know, your ATSL standards, uh, number five, data assessment and feedback. NAPLAN is the poorest form of feedback. Mm -hmm. It measures nothing, you know, even on the Wikipedia site or on its own site for NAPLAN, it says it's for school performance <coughs> and it talks about stakeholders being students, teachers, whatever. It's not at all. It's of it's damaging. If I was to take a look uh, from a student wellbeing perspective, um, it's harmful to children because of the stress and the confusion that there's no actual link or relevance to curriculum, yet this is just imposed upon them. For kids in Utopia, where I was, it's just another brutal form, a reminder of colonisation mm -hmm. in a different language. Um, for teachers, it's bludgeoning it's everything they didn't want to do. It's, it's for teachers, NAPLAN is a reminder of the 53% that I could become a part of that's imposed upon them. And even, f I, I think, um, having worked closely with you know, senior bureaucrats and politicians, I, I think they believe that this must be good that there must be something in their minds that if you're opposing it, you're sort of one of those lazy teachers. Um, or you don't have high expectations. Mm. You know? I, I, that's what I think. But I think one of our, our huge problems is that people that have the power uh, really have little to no idea of, of what they're doing. And um, it's very damaging for all of us, it's a it's a missed opportunity. I reckon that'll do for the moment. And that was Brendan Murray speaking at last year's No to NAPLAN forum. Hopefully we'll see some movement on the anti-NAPLAN front this year. Um, just letting you know who Brendan Murray is. He was an edu He's an educator. He's the former executive principal of Parkville College and he started the Pavilion School. Um, he's now the director of Article 26 Education Consultants and he's of Ewan and Irish descent. Yeah, now we're going to go and do something a little bit different. Um, not a song of satire quite but a uh, song of interest for the week. Now, this will tie into our next and last interview for the today's show. But this song is called Mother by Idols, and, that's, and we're going to spend a little bit of time just breaking it down because it's a cool, cool song. So this is really a punk anthem for mothers out there who are getting done over by the system, and the song uses the phrase mother to kind of look at the role that mothers play in the society, but more so how society ignores or hurts mothers, uh, how, the, how the society institutionally stitches them over. And it starts off with a statement talking about how much single mothers work, you know, and due to its heavy rock beat, it's kind of this overwhelming dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you can feel it ramping up the energy. But it starts off with, my mother worked 15 hours, five days a week, and ramps it up. And this is really to kind of show the sheer amount of work that kind of single mothers or mothers do in our society that go kind of un, un, ignored. And the singer is absolutely furious about this. He, he kind of criticises society for how little empathy mothers... Um, little empathy they hold for how much work mothers do and kind of exposes in the song kind of the violence against women within the society and this forced labour. So he talks about the fact that, you know, we have women are, have to survive with traditional gender, uh, gender norms requiring women to do unpaid labour, like housework, raising children, um, as well as also go out, 
work for their families and often be a, a main provider for them. He further then uh, condemns within the song kind of men for allowing these women to kind of do these roles, but also for the amount of sexual assault they have to also put up with during these lives. And it's a pervasive and complex kind of epidemic that makes them constantly live in fear, retorting, how can you men out there allow this to be happening to our mothers? It also then takes on a little bit of a classist critique as he introduces the Tories. Now, for those who don't know, the Tories are a conservative nationalistic party in Britain. And he kind of talks about how the the systemic class kind of divide in England also contributes to this, forcing working-class single mothers to be at kind of the end of the stick. So he says the best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich, kind of bridging this gap between how we then move up through the class divide and saying, look, you really need to use your intelligence against them. And that kind of flows into the bridge, which is really follows the lines, I'm just hitting, sitting here looking at pretty colours. And this is more about the systemic... Um, oh, almost attempt to brainwash the, the working class, so keeping the working class working class. And he kind of talks about either one interpretation is kind of being how society... Sorry, um, how we kind of see a lot of political propaganda and a lot of sound bites and a lot of flashy colours that try to convince us to vote one way or the next. And there's not this focus for working class voters on actually the consequence, the real life consequences that will affect them. Another interpretation is also that this relates to how society views art. You know, people who sit there looking at pretty colours are kind of idiots who should be written off. And the punk band actually has a massive problem with this, with the main singer of the band saying... Um, that the government has instilled a certain ideology which means that the arts aren't taken as seriously uh, from the education system. It really is a shame. We need more support for young musicians and art, um, and doing it yourself is necessary. That's the only way we get heard. So this is Joe Talbot speaking, and it really suggests that, you know, this, this I'm just sitting here looking at pretty colours, I know nothing. It's this need for the working class to educate themselves and to realise kind of this, this systemic oppression. It can also kind of be talking about the fact that, yeah, we, we, we get distracted a lot and there's a lot of the, you know, with the internet, there's a boom of information all the time and we're really forgetting the really important real life effects and we're living in our own little bubble of social media or whatever. Um, he also talks about kind of identifying as a feminist and for Joe Tobolt himself, he actually says that he realised he was a feminist when he realised how hard his mother worked for him, like worked to support the family and that was a hang on, these are just as powerful, these are just as entitled and these people should have just as many rights. Um, so that's, that's why he continues throughout the song and you'll hear it to reinforce just how much overwhelming and much uh, his mother actually worked for the thing, for the, for her family. Um, the last kind of... It, song because it is a traditional punk song so it kind of follows very uh repeated kind of chorus and lines just to kind of really enforce it but the last line is really fascinating because the last lyrics kind of follow change the tone so from from the work mothers do and the lack of recognition they get it kind of looks at where women begin on birth and looks at the epidemic of violence against women that women are born into. So it says, sexual violence doesn't start or end with rape. It starts in our books and behind our school gates. And here the band is really talking about the roots of sexual harassment and sexual assault and where they come from. And he's referencing the fact that um, there were over 55,000 recorded sexual assaults in British primary schools between 2014 and 2017. And he's saying, look, we're teaching our young boys to disrespect women and that's just leading it out through the, the rest of their lives that we kind of we allow this behaviour to go on. He also makes the point that it doesn't start with these large acts. No one starts with 
just sexual assault. It starts with things like predatory or misogynistic or comments or catcalling or derogatory remarks. It starts from small signs of disrespect early on that are allowed to foster and then become these really horrible actions. So that's kind of what he talks about. And to summarise that, he does the be- he paraphrases the beautiful quote by Margaret Atwood: "Men are scared; women will laugh in their faces. Whereas women are scared, it's lives men's. Like it is. Sorry, let me say: it. men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. So he uses that to finish off the rest of his song, and he kind of uses this entire song as not only of subversion. So if you listen to the full the full version, we have censored it. But if you listen to the full version, he is using a metaphorical kind of phrase to suggest how mothers are done over by the system. But he also uses it as a conversation starter, and he says, look, we really got to start this discussion. we really start, we got to start talking to people, people who hold polar or different views to us. We can't just condemn them outright. We need to talk to them, engage them, and change their minds through information and informing them. So he's talking to these working, he's talking to young boys, and he's saying, hey, you need to respect women from young on. He's talking to parents and saying, hey, you need to teach your parents to speak from well on. Teach your children. Teach your children, thank you. And then he's, like, widening the scope and saying, and as a working class, we really need to rise up and look at the conservative parties who are ruling our, uh, our government and question why they're so comfortable with perpetuating these kind of sexist, sexist um, policies and sexist way of life. So that is the song. Sorry, it's been a bit of a word <laughs> jumble. I'm a little out of practice. Um, I'm going to play it for you now, and then we should go into our next interview. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, we just had uh, Mother by the Idols play. It is 8.13 on the 23rd of the 1st, 2019. Next, we have uh, Teresa Edwards on the line to talk about the Parents Next program. Now, just before I get her on, a little bit of background on this program. It was introduced in 2016 as a pilot, um, and it was kind of a support service that aimed to provide parents uh, with children under six with financial support uh, called parenting payments and intensive job job readiness training targeted towards single parents or parents with no income. In 2017, it was declared a success, and the program was fully introduced and expanded but with conditions that meant payments could lapse um, could lapse if they didn't follow through with the conditions, and that sparked controversy within the community. Now, it was implemented in July 2018. The program has been running for just over six months, or just under six months, if my math's correct, and has a Senate inquiry currently launched as by way of review and response to these criticisms. Now, to talk to us about all of the above, we have Teresa on the line. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning. Apologies, Teresa. I said your name wrong. I apologize for that. Um, now, you're the CEO of the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. Uh, could you just tell us how you personally got involved with this um, this whole issue and what your, has been your experience with it? Sure. So the National Council uh, for Single Mothers and Their Children is an organisation funded by the federal government to provide information and support to families, of course, single mother families, that have that are affected by poverty, hardship, and or domestic violence. And it has a particular focus around government policies, such as income support, child support, and also the employment programs, to which ParentNext is one of those programs. Mm. And how did you personally kind of get involved? What's your been your personal kind of 
journey with his parents next because obviously it's gone through three stages now. Um, have you has single mothers sorry the council of single mothers and their children been involved with the policy behind that? Yeah, sure. We've been we've we've been really consistent from the from the start. So you're quite right regarding this um, how Parents Next has evolved, but there was a few forerunners before that as mm-hmm. well. But so really consistent in our approach. So um, we've always advocated strongly for any form of support and assistance to families, particularly vulnerable families. We know it makes such sound sense if you invest early. Mm -hmm. Um, As a community, we get so much back, but also for those individual families, you know, their their resilience, their their welfare, everything benefits. However, we've been really steadfast that there is no place in any single-parent family's life Mm. that assists if their income is reduced, suspended or revoked. That just becomes a really slippery slope into absolute hardship. Mm. So providing uh, or aiming to provide welfare support through establishing study and work goals, providing a dedicated caseworker and great accessibility to local services... um, those are just a few of the things the the program attempted to or attempts to do. What currently works in the the program? Yeah, so our argument is if instead of having um, a program underpinned by compliance and penalty, imagine having a program underpinned by encouragement and reward. Mm-hmm. The the assumption that families. Um, because they are in hardship, are bereft of aspirations and plans, is is just completely wrong. So families do want to um, engage in the workforce. Mm-hmm. They do want to um, build a more secure life for their fam for, the, for their families. In fact, in all of my years of working at the National Council. I've not heard one family who is comfortable living in housing stress or um, yeah. not being able to put food on the table. So mm. it's just the wrong, the wrong style of, of thinking. And when you attach the absolute power of having your payment suspended or reduced if you don't fulfill your obligations or even mm. if there's a difficulty in reporting because you have to report online, it, it removes, it actually changes the discussion that you have with the provider. You you can have um, women going through, through the motions, not fully disclosing uh, what's occurring in the background of their life because they don't want anything to interrupt their main source of income. They know that if that's if that's interrupted or reduced in any way, that they will have difficulty just providing the basics for their children. Mm. So we need to remove that, and then we can get down to what the program could possibly offer, which is connections into the community, yeah. which is building confidence, which is doing things like. Um, assisting with with resume starting to plan for the for the future but this program um, 
has quite a few things wrong with it. Like mm. another example is previous to July 2018, if a family were in receipt of PES, which is the pension education supplement, they didn't need to go to a provider. So to be eligible for PES, mm-hmm. your work, you're studying at an approved um, course at an approved institution. So you're already surpassing the requirements of the program. For some reason, this program does no longer give you an exemption. Mm-hmm. So even if you're up and doing that, you still then have to go along to a provider and meet and talk and have it checked off. Um, so it removes all of the, the discretion and the autonomy and the planning that was happening before this program came into play, and now there's some uh, some surveillance around it. Yeah, and I suppose surveillance is a great way of talking about it because with the 2018 introduction, the program acquired participants the conditions of having to go to appointments, create participation plans, and attend kind of compulsory activities. Um, and if they didn't follow through these conditions, uh, they would be the penalties for non-compliance could put participants in the green zone, the warning zone, or the penalty zone. This sounds kind of patronising, especially when you've got the connotation of demerits and penalties for this non-compliance. It, it kind of makes it feel contradictory to what it's trying to do. It's, it's kind of coercive of this attend our activities or have your support removed. Isn't that completely counterproductive? Absolutely, and it removes any sense of trust mm. and it can, can actually build stigma in the community. So one example, a mum was talking to me about her, um, you know, her, her child has particular needs and swim and swim therapy mm-hmm. were really important for his, his health, just beyond the, you know, the usual things that your, your child gets out of um, attending lessons, etc., Mm-hmm. And so she, that was part of her plan. She was already doing it. Mm-hmm. She would report online, but for some reason her provider used to phone the, um, the, 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 the swim club and check in to make sure that she, what she was reporting online was actually happening. Mm-hmm. She was just, for the first time, this program actually had the opposite effect. So instead of her Getting up and going and being excited yeah. and, and being and mixing and watching her child enjoy and and connect with others. Yeah. She just had that dreaded sense that any moment with her walking out of the, the you know, the swimming pool with the child on the hip, the bag of, of wet clothing in, yeah. in her hand, that any moment she would get that there would be a phone call and she'd be asked by the um she would be let known by the swim club that her provider had phoned to check. So it just, it, it, that underpinning, the nuance of that program, yeah. says to women that we, we don't trust your plan. We don't trust that you have um, hoped the future. We don't trust that you will get ready. We are going to actually use our biggest stick that we have on you, which is yeah. your access to welfare, access to payment, and we will check. And you can enter in and out of those warning zones and the power that's invested in the providers. So it's the providers that can actually suspend it. It's the providers that make a decision whether an excuse was valid for not attending. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no 
no capacity or fluidity in there for all those sort of childhood bumps. So with children as young as six months, there are things that really derail a day. It can be mm, definitely. It can be nappy rash. Yeah. It can be ear infections. Yeah, and yeah. you don't need to go to a doctor. You just need to manage it. It can, in, in Australia at the moment, in many pockets of Australia, we're, we're sweltering with, with, with heat. And if you're yeah. in hardship, you won't have those wonderful air cons. You'll be hot and bothered. Mm. Your child would be, could be dehydrated. You'd be worried about taking them out. And then you have to let the provider know and they will make an assessment whether that would be reasonable or not, not to attend. Yeah, and I suppose the terms are pretty subjective. You know, uh, you can get penalties for not accepting a suitable job or having a valid reason. Now, it's general knowledge that single mums are some of the busiest people out there um are these new conditions the from your examples these conditions don't seem to be flexible to the concept of fitting this around you know looking after a six under six year old child as well as working and living yeah there's too much discretion so where it's worked well mm-hmm. it's when there's been a really great connection with a provider and mm-hmm. the provider is um good at their job that they, um, they're respectful, they're not forcing someone to repeat their story countless times, especially if there is in the context of domestic violence and they're still unsafe. Yeah. It, but where it breaks down, it's when um, the provider is pretty average or pretty poor of their mm. job and um, has no sensitivity, um, is not aware of everything else. It's like... It's this is our program, you have to attend. And one of the phrases I use a lot for, for single mums is that systemic fatigue, mm. like having to deal with so many organisations, having to deal with child support, having to deal with Centrelink. They could be in and out of the family court. There mm. may be enrolments going on for all those different and quite quick milestones that happen under that six years of age. And there's another place that they have to contend, um, justify, talk Yeah, them. justify, yeah. And it's very much location. So we call it a bit mm-hmm. postcode discrimination. So someone in those locations mm-hmm. will be jumping through the hoop um, at a rapid rate compared to someone else who might be in a more middle-class um, postcode. Yeah. No, that that's, that's, circumstances. But, and I think um, that's. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a, a really, a really interesting point to bring up because that's definitely not one of the. That, that that's not something that's been raised so much within this critique. Now, talking about all these criticisms, um, I'd love if you could just give us an idea. There is an upcoming Senate. Well, there's an ongoing Senate inquiry at the moment, um, with submissions ending in February. Could you just talk perhaps about how any listeners are. Uh, interested in putting a submission and or have gone through their own experience with Parents Next can go in and tell their story and uh, participate in this. Absolutely. So the most valid experience and information that I think any Senate inquiry can see is that rich knowledge that's embedded in the lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So participants of, of the Parent Next, I would encourage them on so many levels. Mm. So the um, it can be really simple putting in a response to a Senate inquiry. It can seem daunting, but it can be as simple as almost a letter form, really basic. You you can, the terms of reference are really broad. So the participant can put in just one statement, even one sentence, one paragraph. Um, if they have something to say but do not want to go to that um, length and they're, and they're a single mum, we would welcome our, uh, our key way of interacting is out through our Facebook and that can be that public or through our private messaging mm -hmm. but we would welcome anyone who, who wanted to make um, their voice and their experience known and heard so it can be before the Senate inquiry they can contact us it can be anonymous we mm -hmm. also have on our Facebook page a survey um, which is really designed again to make sure that when we go to the Senate committee and when we put our submission in, that it's completely um, influenced and inclusive of the participants' experience. Yeah, and thank you so much, Therese, for coming on. Um, now, you also reminded me very, very quickly, because we're running drastically out of time, uh, but yesterday to remind uh, women in their councils to go out and find out what support is available for them um, and to double-check that. Um, I'm going to have to do that shout-out and say goodbye. Thank you so much for coming on our show and talking to us about this. Uh, it's a wonderful, a wonderful cause to be aware of um, and kind of, yeah, look into. Thank you very much. Thank you for Take care. Take care too. Bye. And that was our last interview of today. We have a minute to wrap up. Uh, Will, would you like to say something you were thankful for oh this week? Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm thankful for the rest of the day. I have heaps of time. It's going to be great. How about you? <laughs> I am thankful that I got to play Idols on the radio. That's my best friend's current favourite mm. band. So mm. I'm very happy about that. And go check them out because they are punk rock with a heart. They're really beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, next up is? Next up is? Stick Together. Stick Together. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.